Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's me, Melissa Canchola. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Getting ready, I'm going to start the, the very the main uh, lesson for today. Today is Beware False Prophets. This is with Vodi Vakum. On truth be told, right? As we move toward the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount, we've come, as we looked on last week, to this last section where we see these four comparisons or these four juxtapositions, if you will. We've come to this moment where Jesus actually applies the Sermon on the Mount, where he, where he, he brings his message to a, a conclusion pointed way, basically calling for a response from his hearers. And in the first of those four segments we saw on last week, he calls his hearers to recognize these two roads, that there are two entrances. There is broad gate and the narrow gate. There are two paths. There is the easy path and the difficult path. There are two crowds, many and the few, and there are two destinations. One leads to life, the other leads to destruction. In these middle two sections, they're actually uh, combined, if you will. So we're going to look at this week and then again on next week the same group of individuals. We've looked at these two groups of individuals, those who go in through the narrow gate and those who go in through broad gate, we've looked at those who basically, in one sense, hear the Sermon on the Mount, believe the Sermon on the Mount, apply the Sermon on the Mount, are converted by this message that they hear from Jesus, and those on the other end who choose another route, whether that route is something as far away from Christ as imaginable or whether that route is something that is as close to the route that Christ prescribes as possible without actually coming to repentance and faith. Here, we see that there's another obstacle along the way. And that obstacle along the way is false prophets. We'll see them in the next two paragraphs. False prophets. Today we look at false prophets and Jesus' illustration of the trees and the fruit, beginning at verse 15. If you'll join me there. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. 
say that we are allergic to the kind of teaching that Jesus puts forth here in this passage. Our culture has rendered us allergic to this kind of teaching that Jesus puts forth in this passage. We'll talk more about our allergies as we continue on here, but it makes us very uncomfortable when we talk about this issue because Jesus identifies the fact that there are, first and foremost, false prophets. There are false prophets. There are people who are out there who are false prophets. There are those who speak the truth, and there are those who tell lies. There are false prophets. Listen to D.A. Carson as he puts a finer point on it. Warnings against false prophets are necessary, are necessarily based on the conviction that not all prophets are true, that truth can be violated, and that the gospel's enemies usually conceal their hostility and try to pass themselves off as fellow believers. There are false prophets. This is not new, by the way. Listen to this. Just a few passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 11. We read, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs. Uh, I'm sorry. Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. What I read to you the first time was Matthew 24, 24. Mark 13, 22 is a retelling of this teaching of Christ. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, reads this way. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Acts chapter 13 and verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Jesus. And in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So again, this is not an isolated incident here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus brings this up a number of times in his ministry, and we also have this in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Epistles, the idea that there are false prophets. We have to be aware of this fact. There are false prophets. The second thing we need to know is this. False prophets are not always easy to spot. Notice what Jesus says here. Look with me, if you will, again in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, Jesus says, the first word he uses that beware, be alert, look carefully. Because there are false prophets, and these false prophets will clothe themselves outwardly in the clothing of the sheep. But inwardly, they are not so. Usually we think it's easy. And by the way, that's not what we're allergic to in our culture. We're not allergic to the false prophet who's an obvious false prophet. That's not what we're allergic We don't mind that at all. When someone stands up and tells just blatant, bald-faced lies, 
we had very little problem saying, well, that's a false prophet. Or if false prophets are doing horrendous things and hurting people and manipulating people, you know, the Jim Joneses of the world, we have no problem saying that's a false prophet. But Jesus puts a finer point on it here. Jesus says beware of false prophets, not because they're going to be easy to spot, they're going to be out there for you to see and for all the world to see, and you'll be able to know, hey, that's a false prophet. Ding, 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 red flag. No. Jesus says you need to beware, you need to be on the lookout, because these individuals will dress themselves in the uniform of my sheep. They will hide who they truly are. They will learn to use narrow gate language. They will learn to emulate hard road living. They will learn to masquerade as small crowd people, and they will learn to trick you into thinking that they are on the road that leads life, and yet they are false prophets. Here's why it's difficult for us to identify false prophets. Number one, because of biblical and theological illiteracy. That's our first problem, biblical and theological illiteracy. That makes it difficult to identify false prophets. If we don't know the Bible, if we don't know doctrine, if we don't know theology, it is virtually impossible for us to identify false prophets. That's also, by the way, why we're allergic to those who identify false prophets. We're allergic to it. We really are. We don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable. Somebody's identifying an individual as a false prophet, and we just kind of go, well, no, that person's not a false prophet because they actually stand up and they use Bible verses. Of course, if it was a false prophet, they would stand up and use, what, the, the Bhagavad Gita, do you think? Do you think that would be a successful false prophet if he stood up and didn't use Bible verses? No. Of course they use Bible verses. Of course they use narrow gate language. Of course they do. And what they do is prey on individuals who are biblically and theologically illiterate. Secondly, it's difficult because of the prevalence of ecumenism and syncretism. As a friend of mine calls it, Rodney King theology. Can't we all just get along? The answer is a resounding no. We cannot. What do light and darkness have to do with one another? Can't we all just get along? You know the problem with can't we all just get along? Is that it flies in the face of what Jesus just said here. Beware of false prophets. Yeah, I know, Jesus, but can't we just all get along? No, I'm trying to tell you they have sheep's clothing on on the outside, but on the inside they're ravenous wolves. Yeah, Jesus, I know, but really, wouldn't it be more like you to just get along with them regardless of the fact that they are lying on you doctrinally and theologically? No, what he said was, beware. Not go along and get along. He said, beware. But we're allergic to that. Why? Because of this false and dangerous notion that somehow drawing a line in the sand and saying this is true and that is not is somehow unchristian. Because remember the New John 3.16, 
but the old John 3.16 is actually John 3.16. The new John 3.16 is Matthew 7.1. Used to be that everybody knew the old John 3.16. You put John 3.16 up and everybody goes, yeah, I know what that is. No. Now you put John 3.16 up and people go, what is, what is, what is, what, what is that? Because they don't know the verse, Matthew 7.1. They don't know, you know, if you put that number up, they would have no idea. But if you just started it, judge not. Lest you, they could finish it, lest you be judged. Never seen a Bible a day in their life. But if you start Matthew 7, 1, trust me, they will finish it. Here's what's interesting. Matthew 7, 1, if you just use a little logic here, comes just before what we're reading now. You, 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 you figure that out? We're in Matthew 7, 15 which means Matthew 7-1 just came a very short 14 verses earlier. And those who would manipulate Matthew 7-1 would have you believe this, that basically Jesus said in Matthew 7-1 that you should not judge under any circumstances. Therefore, when we read Matthew 7-15, we have to understand it in the context of not ever judging. Beware. But don't judge. Yes, Bodhi. Yeah, um, I was just wondering if if I was going to um, beware and you know watch really closely and discern if somebody was true or false. I was just thinking, you know, maybe that would kind of by definition be judging. Give that man a prize. Here's the other thing. Turn with me, if you will, to Titus. Turn to the right with me, if you will, to Titus. Quote this all the time. I want you to go and see it and touch it and feel it and taste it and everything else. All right? Titus chapter 1. Just turn there and look at that for a moment, if you will. Titus chapter 1. Because I get, I get letters from time to time and emails from time to time with people who are upset with me um, because I identify false prophets from time to time. And, and usually, basically, all I do is send them back. It's Titus chapter 1, verse 9. By the way, Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, we have the requirements for elders, biblical requirements for elders. At the end of those requirements, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's my job description, folks. No sound doctrine, to teach sound doctrine, and to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. That's my job. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And any pastor who is not rebuking unsound doctrine is not doing his job. Can you say amen? You ought to say ouch. Does that mean we have to be mean and nasty to people? Sometimes. (laughs) Usually not. Back in our passage. Back in our passage. By the way, that's why it's difficult for us. Again, it's difficult for us because 
false prophets are difficult to identify. They're there, but they're difficult to identify. We're not just talking about the obvious ones who are out there. Jesus says these are individuals who have clothed themselves in the garments of my sheep, followers. See, the false prophet that's the scary one is not the one who is out there teaching doctrine that is completely in opposition to biblical truth. No, the false prophet who's the scary one is the one who has meat of a lie covered with the skin of the truth. Listen to this, John chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. There's a third thing we need to know is false prophets are not a danger to the true church. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he, get, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. Amen. Do we need to be on guard? Yes. But here's what you need to know. True sheep follow the true shepherd, and they do not follow the voice of a stranger. Yet, false prophets are still a danger. Why? Listen to what Jesus says. First of all, the admonition, beware. Beware. Why be on guard? I mean, if there's no danger, why be on guard? Secondly, what does he call these individuals? Ravenous wolves. In other words, they come to do much harm, like the thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Here's what you need to know. A false prophet is ultimately not going to take a narrow gate, hard road, small crowd, on the way to life Christian and turn him into a broad gate, easy road, big crowd, on the way to death, non-Christian. We talked about that last week. We talked about the perseverance of God's elect last week. So that's not the danger. Here's what you need to know. A believer can have his or her life turned upside down by a false prophet. A believer who knows God, loves God, and is following God can have his or her life turned upside down by a slick-talking false prophet. Sometimes for years, a false prophet can have a true follower of Christ twisted and tied all up in knots until they are ultimately delivered from the falsehood. So don't you think for a moment that just because you're a follower of Christ, just because you've been born again, that you don't need to be careful about what you listen to and that there is no danger in listening to false prophets. There is a danger. They can do you and your family much, much harm. That's one of the reasons that God has given elders to the church to protect the doctrine of the church, to protect the teaching of the church, to refute false teaching that would come in and impose itself on the church. That's one of the reasons that God gave the office of elder, to protect the body especially in those circumstances, because there are people out there who look good, 
who sound good. They're on Christian radio. They're on Christian television. Some of them have household names and are best-selling Christian authors. And they're ravenous wolves. What do they do? False prophets bear bad fruit. And they bear bad fruit in two main ways. Bad teaching, bad living. Bad teaching, bad living. Look at what Jesus says again. You will recognize them by their fruits. Outwardly, they may look really good. You need to become a pretty good fruit inspector. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. Diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. It can't happen that way. What do you do? Examine the fruit. That's our responsibility as believers. Examine the fruit. Here's what I want you to see. The first fruit is bad teaching. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, I just had to read this for you. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 18, 20 through 22. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? By the way, as New Testament believers, we have an advantage over those to whom Moses was speaking. The advantage that we have is we have God's word. So God, who in times past spoke to the prophets and the fathers in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son through whom he made the world. So understand this. So we're reading here in Deuteronomy individuals who did not have a completed canon. We, however, do have a completed canon. So we have a different set of criteria. But as I read this, and I'll explain that more in a moment, but listen to this. How, how do we know? How are you going to know that this person hasn't spoken from me? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not fear him. Does what he say come to pass? That's the test. Moses gives the people of Israel. Moses says, hey, if you're wondering whether someone is a false prophet or not, it's very easy. You just ask yourself this question. Did what they said was going to come to pass actually come to pass? But remember, I just told you, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that's no longer our test. Our test is, does what he said come from and line up with the Bible? Amen. Our Bibles are bound in leather, not three-ring binders, folks, and that's for a reason. We are not in the process of getting continued revelation from God. So the first sign of a false prophet is he speaks things as though they are from God, but they're not found in God's Word. Things as though they are from God, but they are not found in God's Word. We've talked about this before. But I have to take a moment to do it again. I beseech you. I begged you before from this very spot. I'm going to beg you again from this very spot. 
to be very careful and to stop using language like God said, God told me, and God spoke to me. Don't talk like that. That's heretical language, people. Because when you use words like said, spoke, and told, you are referring to audible speech, and you are equating whatever comes after that with what we have in the Word of God. That's heresy. Now, what we usually mean is God enlightened me, God brought something to my understanding, God impressed upon me. Use those words all you want, but do not say, God said, God told me, or God spoke to me, because if you do, you are out of line theologically. Unbiblical speech, because God does not say, God does not speak, God does not. tell in those terms anymore, not because I say so, but because the Bible says so. We have a closed canon. So one of the ways that you know that someone is particularly a ravenous wolf, again, there are individuals who just speak these kind of things and they don't mean it, it just sort of comes out because we're so used to hearing it in our culture, and we'll say things like, God told me this, God said that. God spoke this, and we'll say it, and that's not what we mean. That's not what I'm talking about. That's somebody who just needs to be corrected. And you and I both, all of us in this room, are more than likely guilty of having been loose with our speech in that way before. We did not mean I am speaking to you with the same authority as Moses or Paul or Jesus. That's not what we meant. We were just loose with our speech. We adopted a bad habit from our culture. That's not what we meant. But there are individuals in our culture who say those things and mean them. They're false prophets. They're false prophets. According to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, they are false prophets. It just sounds so judgmental. Welcome to the narrow gate. Not only do we have false teaching like that, but we also have false teaching just like the stuff that we found, for example, there in Deuteronomy. People making predictions that just don't come to pass. For example, probably the most famous, Edgar Wiesnett. Anybody know that name, Edgar Wiesnett? If you know that name, you probably know that name because of one of the most notorious Christian books ever published, 88 Reasons That the Rapture Will Come in 1988. Not even familiar with that title. It was a bestseller. Sold over a million copies. 88 reasons the rapture will come in 1988. I mean, you know he wasn't thrown out on his ear in 1989, but yet still had a ministry and still published. False prophet. Ellen G. White predicted that the world was going to end in, in excuse me, 1843, 1844, and 1851. Here's what's amazing. By 1851, people were still listening. And who can forget the first Gulf War? And TBN was filled with false prophets basically saying, folks, this is the Battle of Armageddon. Babylon has arisen again. 
In fact, they would tell say things like, you know, Saddam Hussein thinks of himself as the re-coming of Nebuchadnezzar. This is it. How about all the Y2K crazies? This is it. Go get all your stuff and get ready. It's over. The clock's going to strike midnight, 1999, and that next second will be the end of the world as you know it. Get your stuff and get ready. False prophets, everyone, everyone. Right? Not only is there the bad teaching, but there's also the bad living, if you will. And this is, an ex- well, it's not that extensive a passage, but look with me in Second Timothy chapter 3. You can't talk about this and not read Second Timothy chapter 3. It would be criminal not to read Second Timothy chapter 3. Look with me, if you will. Second Timothy chapter 3. Really, almost the whole chapter. Not almost the whole chapter. We do. We have to read the whole chapter. We just have to. Okay? Second Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, here's what you need to know. Okay? From a theological hermeneutical perspective, when he uses this term, just like when the author of Hebrews uses the term in Hebrews chapter 1, when he uses this term in the last days, what he's referring to is the time between the first coming or advent of Jesus Christ and the consummation of all things. So when he says in the last days, he doesn't mean, you know, when it's really close to the time of the rapture, that's not what he's saying. This term, when we read it in the New Testament, when we read it from the author of Hebrews, when we read it from Paul and others in the New Testament, um, again, it's not like he's talking about the last day, different term altogether. He says in the last days here, he's referring to that intermittent period between the first coming of Christ and the consummation of all things when he comes again. Know this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Stay away from such people. That sounds so judgmental. Welcome to the narrow gate. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Wow. Disqualified regarding the faith. That's more judgmental. But they will not go very far. Their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Here's what's interesting. You remember last week we talked about that term that comes after the narrow gate, that term for the way? 
He says the way is hard. Remember I told you last week that the word used there in the Greek is the word from which we get the word persecution? So in essence, Jesus was saying one of the evidences that you are a narrow gate, hard road Christian is persecutions. Here, Paul is saying to Timothy, you know those liars? Those liars are not like me. And one of the ways that they're not like me, Paul says what? You know my persecutions. You've seen evidence of my narrow gate hard road, few friends life. And that's one of the distinctions Paul says between himself and the false prophets. Thank you so much. Listen to the rest of this. Indeed, verse 12, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might, not could, but will. All evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's for you. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped, for every good work. What does Paul tell Timothy? You're okay because you've got the scriptures. Distinctions between the true prophet and the false prophet. Number one, their teaching. Number two, their life. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of what they teach. Look at the fruit of how they live. Does what they teach line up with what the scriptures say? Is how they live, line up with what the scriptures say. By the way, and if we're looking for the way that they live, where would we look? Again, think about the sermon that Jesus is preaching. Don't disconnect it. Where do we go to find the kind of lifestyle that Jesus is talking about? How about all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 1, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? He lays out for us what the kingdom lifestyle is like. That's what we're looking for. Go back to the Beatitudes. Go back to the six antitheses. Go back to chapter six. Prayer. True fasting. True giving. Go back and look at the true religion of Christianity as Jesus has already laid it out in chapter five, chapter six, and the beginning of chapter seven, and you have the kind of fruit for which we are called to look. Finally, under this matters. We're not ready and willing to test and judge. None of this matters. We're not ready and willing to test and to judge. It's meaningless if we're unwilling to test and to judge. By the way, why do I say judge? The last phrase that Jesus uses is very important. This week and next week, the last phrase he uses in this paragraph is, the tree that doesn't bear good fruit it's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's what you call judgment. Next week we'll hear, depart from me. I never knew you, worker of iniquity, practicer of lawlessness. See, and none of this matters. It, it basically, we don't believe 
that we're supposed to test. I don't believe that we're supposed to make judgments. Again, I'm not talking about being judgmental. Go back to the messages on the early part of Chapter 7, all right, turning your nose up at individuals who don't like the things that you like, who don't agree with you on non-essentials. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about false prophets and identifying false prophets who are destructive in the life of the church. And if all we believe that we're supposed to do is read this for reading's sake and not apply it, not exercise sound judgment, not distance ourselves from false teaching, and not expose false teaching whenever we find it, then we'll have a problem. Listen to this, if you will. First John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Again, is this the only test? No, it's not the only test. Remember the series we did through First John? There are many tests. Here, dealing with false prophets, he says, test what you hear from them. Test the spirits by the spirits. This is judgment, folks. And it's the way Christians are commanded to live. Look with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. How about that? These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What, pray tell, made them more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica? Glad you asked. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Folks, this is the Apostle Paul. Did you follow this? This is the Apostle Paul. This guy comes into town, and he's been bitten by serpents. Live. This guy has a man listening to him one night, falls out of a window and dies, raises him back to life. He comes to Berea, and they say, all that's fine and good. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take what you said today. We're going to go back and look in our Bibles. We're going to search the scriptures to see if what you're saying is actually true. The Bible says that made them more noble. You test what you hear? Even from here? They're far from infallible, folks. They are. You test what you hear. That's one of the reasons that we teach the way we do. It's one of the reasons that we come and bring your Bible, open your Bible, look in your Bible, read it, touch it, taste it, see it. Because we want you to develop habit. Testing what you hear. Don't you dare trust me. Trust the word. I am a frail, 
fragile, wounded, broken, messed up individual. By the way, welcome to the club. That's what every one of us is. As such, we've got to have something more than just the power of our own persuasion and personality. We have to test everything by the word. Test everything by God's truth. Test everything by what's been spoken. Here's what's sad. I've actually had this seen with my own eyes in churches. Disagreements about certain things or disagreements about, you know, what's going on here, what's going on there. Seen it with my own eyes. Heard it with my own ears. Yeah, you keep opening that Bible. You keep reading those verses. I really don't care what those verses say. I've heard that from people who've been in church for years. For years, you got to be like the Bereans. You must test everything according to scriptures. And we must be ready and willing always to identify, expose, and flee from false prophets. Don't like the way that sounds? Turn with me to one more passage. Look at Ephesians. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, Ephesians chapter 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The culture says, that's mean and nasty, that's judgmental, that's not Christian. The Bible says, that's the spirit. Beware of false prophets. Expose the deeds of darkness. Refute those who contradict sound teaching. Now I will expose myself as a liar because there's one more passage of Scripture. And I said that was the last one, but I already told you that I am a weak and frail and fragile individual. Jude. Jude gives us this. While I was making every effort to write you concerning our common salvation, I felt the need to write you and 
urge you to contend earnestly for the faith. The agonizomai, to agonize greatly, to wrestle. The term is used in classical Greek for wrestlers who are engaged in combat. He says, I want you to engage in combat, to agonize greatly for the faith. That was once for all handed down to the saints. Why? Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who do two things. One, turn the grace of God into lawlessness. That's bad living. And number two, deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's bad teaching. Jude says, agonize greatly against false teachers. War with them. Those who turn grace into lawlessness and those who deny the essential truths of the gospel. Agonize greatly in that field of combat. Wage war in that field of combat. Refute those who contradict. Expose their dark deeds. Hold firmly that which is true. Why? Because we delight in the combat? No. Because we delight in the truth. And there is a major difference between those two. Let us delight in the truth. Beware of false prophets. When you find them, show them much love, no quarrel. Beware the dreaded All Hallows Eve, or as we come to know it, Halloween, a subject of much controversy among Christians. Some participate with costumes and trick-or-treating like anyone else. Others try to redeem the holiday by calling it a fall festival or doing a trunk-or-treat. Some do Reformation Day parties. Since October 31st is the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Personally, I like that one. Then there are those who choose to abstain entirely, shutting off the lights and locking everything down until the zombie apocalypse is over. Is there anything evil about dressing like Batman or Batgirl and going door-to-door asking for candy? No, there's really not. However, the origins of Halloween are unmistakably pagan with things a Christian should not participate in, like death and the occult. But Halloween is impossible to get away from. Once October rolls around, it's everywhere. Parents should always teach their children what is acceptable and what's not. In our hearts, we need to revere Christ as holy and honor God in all that we do. It's hard to deny door-to-door visitors make for a great opportunity to hand out tracts and share the gospel. As for whether or not to go trick-or-treating, the Christian is free to make that decision on their own. But don't quarrel over opinions. One person thinks of a day one way, while another thinks all days alike. Don't pass judgment on the one who abstains or on the one who eats Halloween candy. (laughs) Know the origins of Halloween and study Romans 14 to help you come to an informed and biblical decision. In the process, avoid guilting others into why they should or should not participate. Everyone is to be fully convinced in their own mind when we understand the text. What kind of argument can I make for switching to the Legacy Standard Bible? Is it okay if women act like tomboys? And what other kind of nonsense is being pushed by the chosen? A reminder of salvation. This is Ken Ham, encouraging you to bring the whole family to see our Ark Encounter. 
I believe the greatest symbol of salvation, aside from the cross, of course, is Noah's Ark. You see, the flood was God's judgment on a wicked world filled with sin. The only way to be saved from this judgment was to go through the one door of the ark. Someday, God is going to judge the world again, but this time with fire. But we won't need another ark to be saved. We need Jesus Christ. Just like there was only one door into the ark, there's only one way to escape God's judgment. And that is through Jesus Christ. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. To be saved, we must put our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Want to learn more about salvation through Jesus Christ and other truths from the Bible? Visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. Now, this is from when we understand a text um, there from their podcast, playing the question and answers. This is from episode 1870, and it is on the channel WWT text, and I'm going to play that right now this year. All right, before I get to some questions, it is the Friday edition of the broadcast, and we take questions from the listeners. You can send those questions to whenweunderstandthetext at gmail.com. Before doing that, let me read to you here from Psalm 96. Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh. Bless his name. Proclaim good news of his salvation from day to day. Recount his glory among the nations, his wondrous deeds among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. He is more fearsome than all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty sanctuary. Anytime you hear me reading from the scriptures, and if I'm using the name Yahweh, most likely I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. And that actually leads to my first question here. This is from Kent in Indiana. And he says, Dear Pastor Gabe, I so appreciate your dedication to preaching the Bible word for word, both Old Testament and New. I appreciate that, Kent. I'm a relatively new listener, but I love that I have all these different series through all these different books to go back to whenever I want. I caught one episode. I can't remember the number now, but I want to say it was in the 1500s. <laughs> That's funny reading that. Yeah, you mean 1500s is in the number of the episode, not an episode I did back in the 1500s. <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, I, th- I thought that was funny. So going on, he says, where someone asked you about switching translations and you said you hadn't made the decision yet, But in the latest episodes, it sounds like all you read from is the LSB. Have you officially made the switch to the Legacy Standard Bible, and can you say why? I'm just curious. Thank you again. Yeah, I have officially made the switch to the Legacy Standard Bible. I will not only continue to do the LSB in future broadcasts, but it will probably be what is quoted in all the what videos, and it's what I'm preaching from now. Now, my Sunday school lessons are still in the ESV, mostly because the majority of my Sunday school teachers are teaching from the ESV, and when I write the lessons, I write it in the ESV. That's still the preferred translation among our congregation. A few years ago, Pastor Tom had switched to the ESV, then he switched to the NASB 95, 
and now he's gone, by my persuasion, he's gone to the LSB. And he would agree. It is the superior translation. Pastor Tom is more fluent in Greek than I am, and he would even say that the LSB is more faithful to the original manuscripts, to the, to the earliest manuscripts, we'll put it that way, than any other translation out there. Now, I bought, uh, e, I, I bought LSB translations for all of my kids. So, well, except for my daughter, Annie, because I'm going to get her a really nice one, and her birthday is coming up. So I'm, I'm waiting on that one. But the rest of the kids have received the children's version of the LSB. I love that Bible. What a great Bible. Yes, they have children's versions of the LSB now. And you can find it when you go to 316 Publishing, I believe, or Steadfast Bibles, one of the two. Anyway, if you look up 316 Publishing or you look up Steadfast Bibles, it will get you to LSB. They also sell NASB on that page, so you've got to be careful. Make sure what you're getting is the LSB. And there's all different kinds to choose from. So it's, it's getting to the point where the LSB is now in print enough, and there's enough people buying it that they're starting to offer some variety. That's one of the advantages to being an ESV reader is there's so many different kinds of Bibles that you can get, and a lot of them are even cheap and affordable. Well, the more that the LSB is printing, the more affordable they're becoming, even getting to the point where you'll have paperbacks and all that kind of stuff where you can buy them for like five bucks each and be able to distribute them like you can with a lot of Bibles. So uh, anyway, I highly recommend the Legacy Standard Bible. The expository workshop we just had, we gave a hardbound copy of the LSB to every single pastor. And in the small group that I had, it was about eight of us, I think, who were doing our worksheets together. Three of the guys in the middle of the workshop, three of them started reading from the LSB. They had their new hardbound LSBs with them and were, and were going through that as we were looking at the scriptures and discovering uh, you know, the, the structure of the passage, all this different kind of thing. The punctuation's different in the LSB than it is in the ESB, or, but you're going to find that in a lot of translations. The punctuation is not absolute. It's not always divinely inspired. Now, the LSB app is kind of disappointing. I'm sorry, guys. I don't know who's responsible for that app, but it's not a good app. So what I do on my smartphone is I've actually saved the LSB website, because the way they do the, uh, the Bible on their website is much better than what they do on their app. So I'll actually access it from the website rather than the app. Now, Literal Word, you know what a, a fan I've been of Literal Word, if you've been listening for a long time, they're going to add the LSB to their app. I think Literal Word is the superior Bible app. All the different options and things that you can do with it, the layout, the format, it's exactly what I would want in a Bible app. And so I'm thrilled to hear they're going to be adding both the LSB and the ESB. Right now it's just the NASB. The app started because they wanted to preserve the New American Standard Bible 1995. And now with the Legacy Standard Bible, they're going to add that translation to the app and also the English Standard Version. So you'll have three translations on there. I'm so glad they're doing that. But that's what I would encourage you to download, just to have it, just because, the, the I, you know, I don't regularly read the NASB. I don't preach from the NASB, but that app is just so good. It's my go-to app. It's the first app I'll go to. So, uh, so anyway, check that out. Download Literal Word on whatever smartphone you use, whether it's uh, Android or iPhone. You can find the Literal Word Bible app, and it's free. And because it's just, I think, a couple of guys doing it, putting it together, you know, they're, they're doing it on their own time. 
So the rollout of the of the new translations on the app, it's going to take a little while because they have to work through all of that. But I'm still appreciative of all their work. And thank you for your question, Kent. Uh, oh, the other part of your question, you said, can you say why? I don't know. Maybe I'll save that to another episode so I can I can kind of flesh my answer out a little bit better. I will say this. It was when I was teaching through 1 Corinthians on the podcast. So if you go back to – that was last year, wasn't it? 2022, or was it 21? I don't remember. Anyway, uh, when I was teaching through 1 Corinthians on the broadcast, it was doing that teaching that sold me on the LSB is definitely better here. And uh, and that, that kind of got the ball rolling because 1 Corinthians and the LSB was so much better than it was in the ESV. I've explained a little bit of that to my Sunday school class, if you're listening to the Sunday school class messages on Sunday. And I've talked about that a little bit there. But otherwise, it's little, little things here and there where the LSP has just kind of shown itself to be a superior translation. I did not think I would ever change translations. I thought when I chose back in 2012, this is the translation that I'm going to preach from. I, I thought I was marrying myself to a translation, and I was never going to pick another one. But the LSB was just such a good translation. And the ESV changes on top of that. That's one of the disappointing things about the ESV, and it's one of the reasons why I left the NIV, because it was changing so much. When I first started preaching, I was preaching from the NIV. And and it was changing a lot, and I hated that. And so I went to the ESV, but the ESV changes a lot. However, the legacy standard translators, they're wanting to create a translation that is long-lasting, so that generation – uh, generations later, uh, a generation down the road, they're still reading the same legacy that we were reading here in the 2020s. I appreciate that commitment. And so, and so that's something that I look forward to with studying from this Bible, giving my kids this Bible, and they're going to be growing up with the same translation. Now, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's 15, well, she's about to be 15. That's the birthday I'm buying her a really nice legacy or <laughs> anyway, she will have gone through a couple of translations in her life. She was in the ESV when I was encouraging my kids to read that, and now we're making the translation of the LSV. I don't think any of the rest of my kids are going to notice that much, but she definitely will. Anyway, great translation. I like it a lot, and that's the one I would recommend. I encourage you to pick up a Legacy Standard Bible. Next question. This comes from Kat. The cat says, hey, first off, I want to say that I love your ministry. Your videos and podcasts are very helpful to me. I have a question about gender roles. Is it wrong for a woman to be a tomboy? I know that the culture makes it seem like all the girls with that kind of personality are either lesbians or feminists. Yeah, it does, <laughs> it does kind of seem that way, right? And if, uh, if a woman acts like a tomboy or, you know, teenager – young 20s, something like that, if she acts like a tomboy, they're just going to say, well, she's really a, a lesbian or she was a, a man born in a woman's body or something like that. Anyway, but what about someone who honestly just has a boyish personality, like sports and video games, wears men's clothes, strong-willed, etc.? Should they strive to be more feminine? And what about with men? Is it okay for them to be more sensitive and be interested in typically feminine things? What does the Bible say about this? Thank you for taking the time to read. And that is a great question. And honestly, I'm going to say up front, it is not an easy one to answer, even scripturally. Although I will say this, that there is a clear indication from Scripture 
that men should dress a certain way and women should dress a certain way. Now, exactly how men are going to dress, that's going to change from culture to culture, and likewise with how women dress. But consider that we do have prohibitions in the scriptures about women dressing like men or men dressing like women. So Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. Now what might be uh, addressed here in Deuteronomy 22 as we try to understand that or translate it to our modern context, it may be talking about intent more than actual articles of clothing, because the law doesn't say women should dress this way and then list what her clothing should be like, and men should dress this way and then list his clothing. We don't have that in the law. It just says a woman shall not dress like a man, and a man shall not dress like a woman. So the intention is probably the thing here. What do we typically think of women looking like? And is a man dressing like that so that he appears to be like a woman? What do we think of a man typically looking like? And is a woman dressing like that so as to be perceived as a man? That is what Scripture prohibits. There should at least be something about the woman that clearly identifies her as a woman, even in what she wears, but still doing this with modesty. And likewise with men, there should be something in the way that uh, a man dresses to demonstrate that he is actually a man. You should not have to look at a person and try to guess well, is that a woman or is that a man? Men should not be wearing dresses, <laughs> and a woman should not wear like a tuxedo uh, that you would typically see men in that women should not be wearing. Even though I know there are women in this culture that will wear a suit and a tie and a tuxedo, I don't think they should. That should be men's clothing, and women formally dress another way, something that is uh, more customary to what women wear. We also have in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women professing godliness. So there's even a demonstration there in 1 Timothy 2 that women tend to look like this. Even in the Ephesian culture, that Timothy was uh, living in, where, where he pastored the church there in Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, of course, you are surely familiar with the head coverings debate that we have there in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, I believe it is. I'm going to be addressing that in my Sunday school class in not too long, and that will be on the broadcast too. Uh, but it, So there in the instructions that Paul gives to the church in Corinth, Women should have their heads adorned this way, and men should have heads like this. A man should not wear his hair long that looks like a woman, and a woman should not cut her hair short to look like a man. And Paul goes back to the order of creation in that. He doesn't just say that arbitrarily, and it doesn't appear to be in a cultural context. He comes back to creation. So as we typically think of a woman's hair as being longer, I think that a woman should wear, a hair wear her hair longer, and that men should not wear their hair in such a way as to appear feminine or effeminate. Some of that, though, is it's, it's going to be subjective. So I think there needs to be some wisdom there. We need to be careful not to become legalistic. All men should look like this. All women should look like this. Women can't wear jeans, you know, something like that. Just because a woman has jeans on doesn't mean she's dressing like a man. There are going to be some 
some of those things that are culturally acceptable. So you've got to be thinking about that. But most of all, you want to be thinking about what's honoring the Lord in this. How is what I am wearing honoring God? He made me to be a man. God made me to be a man. So I want to dress in a way that looks like a man, that looks like the way God made me. And likewise, if you're a woman, you want to dress in a way that looks feminine, that people know that you are a woman. And there is a certain way that we consider a woman's body that's different than the way that we consider a man's body. There's different parts on the two bodies, in case you're ignorant and have not yet noticed that. Our culture seems to be quite ignorant about that. But you know, there are biological differences between male and female. And so even what we wear is going to accentuate that or treat those certain parts of our bodies with the proper modesty and yet still being able to at the same time celebrate that we have been made either male or female. Now, Kat, you also mentioned in here, you said, what about someone who just has a boyish personality who likes sports, video games, wears men's clothes, is strong-willed, etc.? Should they strive to be more feminine? Well, I like playing video games with my wife. I mean, we've enjoyed playing video games before. We watch certain movies, and it tends to be that, you know, when we go out to the theater, we're going to watch something more action-packed than romantic. But when we're together uh, by ourselves, we'll watch a, a rom-com or something like that. My wife likes sports. Occasionally we'll watch, you know, different sporting events. I don't watch as much professional sports as I used to, mostly because everything got so extremely woke. <laughs> now, and I will tell you this, Becky is very strong-willed. She used to drive, I always, always get this wrong, I'll undershoot the size of the truck, and she'll correct me later, no, it was bigger than that. She used to drive a 60-ton haul truck, like one of those huge dump trucks. But if you have boys, they've got, uh, you know, a, a dump truck, Tonka truck version of, that's what she used to drive. She used to drive the real thing. In fact, when that truck, just a couple of years ago, finally retired. They had to retire that truck. They had to junk it. The guy who used to be her boss took a picture of it and sent it to her and said, we had to get rid of it, you know, and she was, she was heartbroken. That was my truck. That was the truck that I used to drive. So I'll tell folks whenever, uh, you, know, you know, we, uh, if there's ever a discussion about who's more strong-willed in a marriage or something like that, I will say, in the heart of my wife roars a 60-ton haul truck. So when you talk about a strong-willed woman, that's my wife. And yet when it comes to recognizing the instruction for women to submit to their husband, my wife, it, it's probably a little bit harder for her than, than for other women to take on a submissive role because I don't think that's, you know, naturally within her personality. She, she's not just inclined to want to be submissive, but she does that because she knows that's what Scripture says, and she wants to honor the Lord. So when it comes to being feminine in that way, that when you are, I don't know if you are married, you didn't mention that, or if you desire to be, but in, in order to please the man God has given you, you want to consider some of these things in Scripture. He does most likely want a wife who is going to be feminine, who wears dresses and shows that feminine quality about herself or who will manage her household well. I think no matter what kinds of hobbies and interests you have that are typically considered to be tomboyish or masculine, there's still the, the things that a woman should do, according to what Scripture says, like 
loving her husband and her children and managing her household. Talked about in places like 1 Timothy 5 and in Titus chapter 2, you know, places like that. So there are certain responsibilities that you will have as a wife that you need to do, and that is in obedience to the Lord. And doing that with joy, not saying, oh, well, I mean, it's not really my personality, but I have to do this because God said so. God does not want your begrudging submission. He wants you to do it with joy. You delight to do these things because God has created you for this, and he's called you to this, and this is in service of the one who gave his life for you. Jesus was in the form of God but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, making himself nothing and taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross so that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what Jesus did for us on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So because Jesus submitted to the will of his Father, because Jesus made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant, he died for us, he rose again from the dead. In light of these things Christ has done for for us, it should be your joy to want to do what he asks of you according to his word. Like I said before, there's going to be some wisdom things in this. In some of these matters, it's not a definite yes or no, black or white. So get some wisdom. I would encourage you to talk to your pastor, talk to some other ladies at your church, because one of the things that's said in Titus 2 is that the older women should teach the younger women. So you have a great resource with some godly, mature women in your church and ask them, how do you think that I should be dressing or acting or even behaving in such a way that is honoring of God and would likewise honor my husband if you are married or desire to get married. But otherwise, like I said, great question, and thank you so much for writing. I hope that this was helpful for you. Next question comes from William. Hey, Gabe, just a comment on your reviews of The Chosen. I'm hoping my schedule is lightening up here and I'm able to get back to The Chosen reviews next week, but we'll see. Just a comment on your reviews, I love them, but also a thought. Isn't it kind of ironic that the show is called The Chosen, which is a very Calvinistic title? Yet I would be willing to say Dallas Jenkins probably is not a Calvinist, as well as a lot of the shows following. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely not. I highly doubt that, uh, that Dallas Jenkins is a Calvinist. Yeah, he's chosen this title, The Chosen, and the way Jesus will call his disciples in the show almost kind of like they're given an, an out, or they could reject it if they wanted to. <laughs> they could go, nah, no thanks, I don't think I'm going to follow you. But remember that Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you, that you would go and bear fruit. So, highly doubt that Dallas himself is a Calvinist. This next question from Robert, hi, Pastor Gabe, love your podcast and the what videos, they have been a blessing. Check this out, an ad from Jonathan Rumi selling rosaries. You, too, can have a rosary for between $350 and $1,095. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so I went and checked these out. 
Wow, this is a, a very expensive rosary. This one is uh, this one's just a bracelet. It's just a bracelet, but it's three hundred and eighty-four dollars. Goodness. I mean, they look nice. Not, you know, not going to lie. It, it looks like it's probably worth that. I don't know. I would never buy anything. I wouldn't buy a bracelet even if it wasn't a rosary for $350. But, yeah, there's a picture of Jonathan Rumi wearing this really dainty, pricey bracelet here. Let me look at another one. This, the, uh, there's some different categories here. This one is – where did it go? There it is. Parishion's rosaries. Oh, my soul. So, yeah, uh, the, the apparitions rosaries are going to be a picture of Mary along with a crucifix, Jesus hanging on a cross. So here's Our Lady of Guadalupe and St. Juan Diego rosary with Murano glass. That one is $97. Here is um, it's another Our Lady of Guadalupe. So you're praying unto Mary. Our Lady of Fatima rosary with beads. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that or not. That's over $100 for that rosary. So, yeah, the, the whole concept of Mary being on the rosary or, or why it's even called an apparition's rosary, it's because presumably Mary has appeared and has said to her followers, Christians, <laughs> I don't know. They're certainly not Christians, but anyway, uh, the, the claim is that Mary has appeared and said that you're supposed to pray the rosary. So that's why it's called apparitions rosaries, because this, this is from Mary who appeared and said to pray the rosary. But, yeah, so this is the kind of stuff that's being pushed by those people who are associated with the chosen. And it's why I say over and over and over again, this show is not advancing the gospel. People are not getting saved through the chosen. If anybody gets saved because of this show, it's because God was working against it, not with it. It was, you know, they meant it for one thing, extra biblical, something that's not good, whereas God meant it for good. So God can certainly work through it, but that doesn't justify the creation of it. And, uh, and you know, if you've heard past episodes of Becky and I going through those episodes, you hear the problems of the way Jesus says things. It will sound like he's quoting scripture, and you're probably familiar with, oh, yeah, that's that story in John 3 or whatever else. But the words are going to be different. His inflection is going to be different. They are communicating something with this show, and it's not from the Bible. It's only based on the Bible. It's kind of like a fan fiction, but it's not really the Bible. Yet many, many people are thinking that they are witnessing an accurate representation of Christ and his disciples, and they're not. A lot of liberties are being taken with that show. But on top of that, you have Mormons who are behind the creation of the show, using the show to try to recruit for Mormonism. You have Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus in the show, who is Catholic. And, of course, he's pushing all of this Catholic doctrine. And a lot of the stuff is very new age anyway. When you're watching interviews with the actors on the show or with Dallas Jenkins, there is never any promotion of the gospel. I've never heard any promotion of the gospel, which, by the way, if you've seen something like that, send it to me because I'd like to see it. If Dallas Jenkins or anybody else on that show has actually shared the gospel, calling sinners to repentance and believe in Jesus Christ, send me a video because I'd like to see it. I have watched many, many videos, not just of The Chosen, but even like the different interviews and stuff like that. Some of the interviews are so ridiculously boring. 
but I kind of quit watching it six or seven minutes in. But if you know of a time where one of them actually did share the gospel, let me know, because uh, I would like to, I'd like to see if anybody has or, or even what their gospel sounded like. Otherwise, all the stuff that you have being pushed by this show is this very ecumenical, semi-Pelagian, uh, you know, universal faith sort of a thing. It, it is not biblical Christianity. It is not calling anyone from sin to repentance to believe in and follow Christ. I've never even heard any kind of statement like uh, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, John 14, 6. And that being said in such a way as if only by faith in Christ can you be saved from judgment in hell and have everlasting life with God. And I don't know that the show would ever try to push such a message. The God of Evolution? This is Kent Ham, author of the best-selling book on creation, evolution, and the Bible, The Lie. Did God use evolution? Well, consider this. The Bible says that birds were created before dinosaurs, but evolution teaches birds evolved from dinosaurs. Genesis tells us living things reproduce according to their kind. Evolution says one kind changes into another kind. Jesus said humans were Are created in the beginning... Evolutionists say we didn't arrive until billions of years after the Big Bang. Death is a very necessary process in evolution, but God's Word makes it clear that death is the result of sin. It wasn't part of God's original creation. God didn't use evolution. He created just like he said he did in Genesis. Discover the truth about biblical creation and receive daily teaching emails from Ken Ham when you visit our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com. Are there signs that, hey, I think I'm dealing with a progressive Christian here? Yeah, there are some signs you can look for. The big one, the main one, will be how they talk about the Bible. And so in progressive Christianity, generally speaking, they don't see the Bible as a book that's divinely inspired by God in the way that we would teach that it is. They definitely do not believe that it's without error. And so they're going to talk about it like it's a human book that's been written about God rather than a divine book written to and for us. And so you can also look for if, if the gospel is never preached, if, if you never hear about sin and repentance, but instead how to be a good member of your community, how to you go to the right activism causes and things like that and look for a redefinition of terms. There's, there's a lot of vocabulary that's similar, but they're defining those things in a different way. And those might just be some signs to look for. More evidence? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. It can be discouraging to share truth with a skeptic only to have them ignore it all. It doesn't seem to matter how much or how good our evidence is. Some people just won't believe. So do they need more evidence? No, probably not. You see, it's often not a matter of the evidence. It's a heart problem. The people of Jesus' day saw him heal people and even raise the dead, and yet many refused to believe. When Jesus' body disappeared from the tomb, instead of believing, the religious leaders made up a story to explain away the evidence. It's a heart problem. So what's the answer? Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. 
Discover more about the importance of apologetics and why we should defend the Christian faith when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com. First John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, some take this to mean that Jesus died for the sins of every single person in the world. Is that what John meant for his readers to understand? The word propitiation means to appease God's wrath. It's used twice in this letter, here and in 410, where it says that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Who is our? John is writing to the church. Jesus advocates only for Christians. But isn't he also the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? This means that there is no other way of atonement in the world but Jesus Christ alone. 1 John 4.14 says he is the Savior of the world. There's not a Savior for this people and another for that people. There is only Jesus. Now, if you think that he is atoned for everyone's sins, then everyone is forgiven. But that is not our default position. We are guilty before a holy God who will judge the world in righteousness. If anyone in the world is going to be saved, they must repent and believe in Jesus. John wrote elsewhere, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath is satisfied only for those who believe in Jesus when we understand the text. Why does creation matter? This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Ark Encounter, and the Creation Museum. I'm often asked by Christians why the Genesis account of creation even matters. They say, shouldn't we just be preaching the gospel? Well, the gospel is founded in Genesis. It teaches that God originally made a perfect world, but Adam and Eve's sin brought death into the creation. It's because of Adam's sin that we needed Jesus to come as the last Adam. Without the fall in Genesis, there'd be no need for the Savior. Creation is also important because this is an authority issue. There are only two starting points, man's word and God's word. Whenever we trust man's word over God's word, we're making man the authority, not God. So, who's yours? Find out more about the importance of creation and the authority of God's word in sharing the gospel when you visit AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. My name is Chrissy, and I grew up in the Baptist church, and I was a Christian until my early 20s when I deconstructed everything I knew about my faith and about my reality, and I set off on a journey to find truth. She's selling merchandise from what she says are comments left on her YouTube channel. These are probably comments left by trolling atheists. I've had to put up with that for years. Whatever the case, I wouldn't call her a witch. She's just a lost victim of the modern gospel, a false convert who never knew the Lord. So I'm going to do my best to try and answer her arguments, and I hope she listens. It is now 13 plus years later. I have not found the ultimate truth, but I think that's the point. I think the point is to get to a point where you become comfortable just saying, I don't know. I don't know what's beyond this. I don't know who God is. I don't know what my purpose here is on earth. The Bible tells us that a Christian is someone who knows the Lord. So here's a question. When you profess to be a Christian, did you know the Lord? 
that question puts you into a dilemma. Because if you say that you knew him, you're saying that Jesus is real and your whole premise falls apart. So you're more than likely saying, I thought I knew the Lord. And then you'll add, I really sincerely believe. And that's one sign of a false conversion, according to the parable of the sower. They believe for a season. So clearly, you faked it for all those years, and you fell away in time. And your falling away almost certainly traces itself back to the fact that you never saw your sin in its true light. And so you ended up with a morally high view of yourself and a very low moral view of God, as we'll see by your words. So today we're talking about five Bible verses that sparked my deconstruction and caused me to inevitably lose my faith. There are a lot of unsavory things in the Bible, but these specifically are verses that I felt I could not justify. I could not find a good reason that they would be in the Bible, that they would be a part of God's divine inspired word. So the first passage I want to talk about is from Romans 9, which was the starting point of my deconstruction journey. Up until the point that I read and studied and chewed on the words in Romans 9, I believed in a God who created all people, gave them free will, and that he wanted all people to be saved, but he couldn't violate their free will to save them. And that it was the most loving thing to do to give people freedom. And within that freedom, they could either choose him and go to heaven, or they could reject him and go to hell. And that would be entirely their choice. Starting in verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Meaning, there is nothing about you that can come to God and choose. God has to choose you. It says in verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. When Christians talk about you have a hardened heart against God, the Bible says that God's the one that hardened it. Her argument is that none of us have a free will. Romans 9 says that God hardens our hearts. We have no choice. So how does the Christian reconcile human free will with the sovereignty of God? Think of Lazarus being raised from the dead. He'd been dead for four days, so dead he stunk. Until Jesus made him alive, it was impossible for him to respond. He had no free will. This is because he was dead. It was only after Jesus made him alive that his free will came into play. He then responded to his voice. That was the exercising of his free will. And like Lazarus, you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're so dead we stink. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of God. And like dead Lazarus, it's impossible for us to respond to his voice because we are dead in our sins. Therefore, it's only when we're made alive in Christ that we can hear his voice and can exercise our free will. That's why the scriptures say, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Again, like Lazarus, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We can't respond to his voice until God makes us alive. Like dead Lazarus, we have no free will until that happens. Once we're made alive in Christ and can hear his voice, we can respond or harden our heart. That's why we're warned, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. But this is what Pharaoh did. He was proud and stubborn. And if you and I are proud and stubborn, God will resist us. The Bible says he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And as Romans chapter 1 warns, if we continue in sin, he may even give us over to a reprobate mind. However, 
That's not his will. The Bible tells us that he's not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. He commands all men everywhere to repent. And Scripture says, whoever believes or trusts in Jesus shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever. So you do have a free will. And if you harden your heart, God may hand you over to what you're choosing, death and hell. And you don't want that to happen. Where he says to you, tonight your soul is required of you. The defense, God made me do it, but she says is what scripture is saying, doesn't hold up in a court of law, and it certainly won't hold up on Judgment Day. The second passage that really caused me to question the Bible was Psalm 137.9, and you've probably heard it. It's a popular one that is used within the deconstruction community to really talk about these atrocities in the Bible, and it says this. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rock. Now, it is really important to understand the context of this verse. This is what's known as an imprecatory prayer. Um, it is praying evil against your enemies. It is a lamentation. It is an expression of grief. Basically, what this psalmist is writing is uh, about how they were treated so badly by their enemies, and so they want to repay them for what they've done. And this is often justified by Christians in this way. You know, well, they were just expressing themselves. They weren't actually bashing babies into rocks. They just you know, wanted justice. They wanted revenge. But my problem with that is that this is supposed to be the inspired word of God. God is supposed to be inspiring every word of this book. And God never condemned them for praying this prayer. He never said, hey, don't, don't think that way. Don't, don't be so vengeful. Don't be so angry. Don't, don't wish for the harm of innocent babies. No, this is, this is perfectly fine in God's eyes. Killing babies is perfectly fine in God's eyes. She's saying that God is for abortion. I don't think she's being honest here. She must know from Scripture that there are thousands of incidents in the Bible where people did and said evil things, and heaven was silent. God is never complicit when it comes to evil. Rather, the opposite is happening. Every time we sin in thought, word, and deed, we are storing up wrath that's going to be revealed on the day of judgment. And those who have actually killed their babies through abortion will on that day find that he's perfectly just. And they, as sure as hell, and I say that in truth, will come under his just wrath on that terrible day. Third passage that really just struck me, big red flag popped up when I read it, um, was in Deuteronomy 22, starting in verse 28. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married, and he assaults her, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as she lives. And when I read this in the earliest stages of my deconstruction journey, I was very confused, and I thought there has to be an explanation for this. There's no way that God commanded women to marry men who assaulted them if they just paid their father. Like, there's, there's no way the Bible says this. I need to figure this out. I contacted my old pastor, and I asked if I could discuss some things with him because I had some questions. So we set up a, a night to have dinner. I went over to his house. I, I pointed out this verse. I said, what does this mean? Like, what? how can you justify this? And he said, yeah. You know, this is what it says is true at that time in the culture. Um, you know, if a man did that to a woman, she would be considered 
unclean and not eligible to be married, and that would ruin her life. And so the best thing they could do is have him pay money to her father and buy her, and then he'd have to marry her, and he'd have to take care of her for the rest of her life. He would be obligated to do that. That is his punishment. And some people who are indoctrinated, who are taught not to question it, will just go, oh, okay. That makes sense. But not me. I, I couldn't. I could not make sense of that. Well, let me see if I can make it make sense for you. This is from a video called Eloquent Atheist on Christian. There are specific texts, religious texts, that condone evil actions. For instance, in the Bible it says that if you rape a woman, you're allowed to marry her. You can actually force your, your victim, you can rape them, and then force a marriage upon that person and take that person as your wife. How evil is that? Now, I'd like to answer that question. If God will give me one minute to answer sure. without butting in. Here's the verse that's so often cited by atheists to say that a raped woman has to marry the rapist. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her and lie with her, and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give unto the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Notice the words, and they be found. So in context of this verse, three verses previous to it, it says that if a man rapes a woman, he must be put to death. But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. Unbelievably, in the light of the previous verses saying that a rapist was to be put to death, a number of mothers lay hold on her as rape. So for those who can figure out that a dead man can't marry a woman he raped, coupled with the fact that the verse says, if they be found, implying they were both guilty, this verse obviously refers to consensual sex. It's similar to what we nowadays call a shotgun wedding. They had to get married. Fourth passage that I had a really difficult time with that I still cannot find a, a good justification for is in Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 18. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to the city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to sword all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourself. And you may use the plunder your Lord, the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. If you don't trust the Lord with all your heart, you're going to be offended by the fact that God did this. And you won't believe, as the psalmist says, that all of his judgments are righteous and true altogether. You'll be offended by the fact that the scriptures warn all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. Or that God killed a husband and wife in the book of Acts because they told one lie. Or that God killed Uzzah because he reached out his hand to steady the ark. He forgot that God is holy. Or in Genesis 38, he killed a man because he didn't like what he did sexually. And you'll be offended by the fact that God killed the whole human race every man, woman, and child in the Noahic flood, except for eight people. And you'll be super offended by the fact that God has proclaimed the death sentence on every human being because of sin. The wages or the payment for sin is death. 
and you'll be offended by the fact that after death, the judgment, when you stand before a holy God, having a multitude of sins as we all have, that's unless you're trusting in Jesus. The last verse that I want to bring up that I think was very, very crucial in my deconstruction was probably the most famous verse in the Bible, and that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. And most people point to this and they say, how could you find fault in that? How could you have a problem with that? Look at the love. I don't think he was loving the women that he was forcing into marriage with men that assaulted that. I'm not seeing the the love God has for the world. It's really not that much of a gift. It's not that much of a display of love when it was never necessary to begin with. There's a good reason the cross makes no sense to it. This is that reason. Let's say you're a doctor. In front of you is a gentleman who looks incredibly healthy. He goes to the gym every day, but you know he's going to die in two weeks. You've got x-rays that show poison seeping through a system. You've got a cure in your pocket. Do you give him the cure or show him the x-rays? For me personally, I'd probably just give him the cure because I'm a doctor. You know what's going to happen? He's going to say, I don't want this silly cure. I'm healthy. I'm well. Give me a cure for him. If he thinks he's well, he's going to reject the cure. If the doctor knows what he's doing, he'll show him the x-rays. Make him sweat. Make him a little scared to the point where he says, Well, doc, this is serious. I'm dying. What should I do? Now he's ready for the cure. Now he's going to appreciate it and appropriate it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's why the cross makes no sense. If she's not aware of the disease, why then does she need a cure? Like most other people, no doubt, she thinks she's morally healthy. Modern evangelism's failure to do what Jesus did and use the law to bring the knowledge of sin has not only made the gospel irrelevant to millions, but it's filled the church with false converts, some of whom fall away and in some cases become justifiably bitter. The other thing I heard you say is that God does evil things. Yeah, yeah, of course. Micah, you've watched that channel, and you've enjoyed it. Yeah. You said you were once a Christian. You've got some problems. Yeah, I do. I have problems. I, well, the biggest one in the problem of evil, I think, what, using our circular reasoning, I think, it can be active, but also using the Bible and morality can be problematic. And while I also like gay marriage stuff, I struggle with that, too, and heaven and hell, a lot of things. What was your first objection? I think I heard three evil. there. Right, problem evil. So you think that evil exists? I think it does. In your heart? I'm evil too, yeah. Okay, so what's your problem? I have a problem with me. I want to get better. I want to stop the evil. Well, you've got to be born again to stop that evil. Well, I think even without Christianity, we can stop evil. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, but you can't have your sins forgiven without no, Christ. No, I agree. Now we have to make the Bible if our sins are even, like, if God can stop our sins. If God is real. But you're right. I agree. So you you looking at pornography at the moment? No, I'm not. I struggle. I go to the group. I repent of my sin. I, I struggle. But I'm willing to repent and work on myself. I struggle with the, 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 even the claim that he's real. You struggle with the claim that God is real? Yeah. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Every time you look at the heavens, you see the painting of the painter. Yeah. So you're without excuse. You know God exists intuitively. It's common sense. Wow. So we've dealt with evil. Evil exists because sin exists, and it's in our heart. And we know God exists because of creation. What was your third objection? Think God could have walked away from creation? Well, God did walk away and look at the mess the world is. Yeah. yeah, so he's left us with a free will, and we can choose to do evil, and most of us choose to do evil until God changes our heart. 
so God did walk away in a sense. He's created man in his own image, but he's made him autonomous. However, we're responsible for our deeds to God, every idle word we speak. The other thing I heard you say is that God does evil things. Yeah, yeah, of course. Micah, that's a nice biblical name. Yeah. God does not do evil. Okay. You've, got an, you've got an idol in your mind. You've got a, a false God. God is incapable of doing evil. He cannot lie. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So get rid of that thought that God is evil. He cannot do evil. So you would think the slander of the Canaanites would not be evil? All of God's judgments are righteous and sure together. If a God did that which is right today, he would slaughter the whole of humanity and send us to hell. He would kill us. So God is holding back his just wrath. But he let it fly on those Canaanites yeah. because they were so wicked. I didn't think some of those were children, so I think that's unjust. Well, what you're doing is standing in moral judgment over God. Let me ask you a question. You've had a problem with pornography. Okay. Have you lied and stolen? I have. Have you used God's name in vain? Yes, okay. yes. So, Micah, you've told me you're a lying, thieving, adulterate heart, and you're standing in moral judgment over Almighty God. That, that's the epitome of delusion of grandeur. You need to humble yourself and say, I'm not a moral person. How could I stand in moral judgment over Almighty God and say, I need your forgiveness. I need to be washed in my sin. I, I think right. it does seem a little hypocritical. Yeah, it means there's no fear of God before your eyes. Tell me, why did Jesus die on the cross? I think he died so we can see our fallenness and, and make it so we can forgive us or forgive us of our sins. Well, he paid the fine because we broke God's law. Yeah. If you die in your sins today, you you could end up in hell. I, yeah, you're right. I don't want you to go to no, hell. Of course not. So what you need to understand is God's love expressed to you in that cross. Again, we broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. You're in court and someone pays you fine, a judge can let you go. And God can take the death sentence off you and create a new heart in you the moment you repent and put your trust in Jesus, all because of his death and resurrection. Let's move on from today and say, God, I fear you, I'm going to obey you, I'm not going to question your moral character anymore, and I'm going to walk in loneliness of heart obedience to your word. Do you have a Bible? I, I do have a Bible, not with me, but I do. When did you last read it? Um, last week at Bible study. Well, you need to have your own Bible study at home daily. And your faith in God will grow, and you'll pass from death to life. You'll be made a new creature in Christ. Can I pray with you, Micah? Yes, of course. Let's bear in prayer. Father, I pray for Micah that this day he'll truly repent, be born again, come out of darkness into light. And that this day will be the day that he will stop standing in judgment over you and walk in judgment over himself. And that this day he'll pass from death to life because of your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. I, I want to repent and, and believe the truth. Have you enjoyed talking today? I have. Tell you to be Mac Noah Hunting. He's my favorite atheist. This is one of my favorite atheists. Too. Yeah, I hope you have a great day. Thanks, Mike. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in space. The Living Waters Podcast. The Evidence Study Bible. 200 of the most commonly asked questions with a Christian faith, and much more. Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwords.com. Homology, evidence for evolution? This is Ken Ham, author of the new book on death and suffering, Divine Dilemma. When we look around us, we see many similarities between living things. This is called homology. It's often used by evolutionists as evidence of descent from a common ancestor. But just because things are similar doesn't mean they had a common ancestor. 
A car is more similar to a bicycle than a boat, but this doesn't mean they share a common ancestor. They look similar because they were designed for a similar purpose and to function in a similar environment. It's the same in the living world. Living things are all made by a common designer to live in the same world and accomplish the same basic thing. So God just used a similar design. Discover more about how the evolutionary story doesn't make sense of our world at AnswersRadio.com. Faith-building teaching can be found at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at TruthBeToldRadio.com. That is... T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. A reminder that Twitter is now called X, and I was hoping I would turn it back. <laughs> Twitter doesn't make sense to me why they even call it X. I never having heard of the explanation, but yeah, Twitter is X. But if you put twitter.com anyways, they'll still go to it. And thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. That's all I got for now. And for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.